spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to Loved As You Are, an Ignatian podcast with me, Gretchen Crowder. I am so glad you are here. You all continue to show up and listen as each new guest shares their story, and I'm so grateful to see how this podcast audience is growing by leaps and bounds. I especially want to thank those who have left reviews on the podcast so far. HLN8 said, what a fantastic podcast. Gretchen delightfully draws you in with such ease, you'll be convinced that you are a part of the conversation. It's like listening to a good and faithful friend introduce you to some ordinary yet amazing people. And Zach wrote, this show is an enjoyable juxtaposition of holy wisdom and practical insights. I especially enjoyed the episode with Pete Larson. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show. I am so excited to bring you another new guest today, Beth Knob. I really enjoyed our conversation. Beth Knob lives an intentional single life and is passionate about sharing her faith with others. While enjoying a successful career in business, Beth discerned the call to ministry and earned a Master of Divinity degree from Catholic Theological Union. She now serves with Catholic Relief Services, CRS, engaging local leaders to take action in support of vulnerable communities around the world. Prior to her role at CRS, she served as a campus minister at Shield Catholic Center at Northwestern University. Beth is the author of two books, Party of One, Living Single with Faith, Purpose, and Passion, and Finding My Voice, A Young Woman's Perspective. She blogs at BethKnob.com. I first met Beth through a Zoom call in the summer of 2020 with a dozen women Ignatian writers who were discerning the call to start writing for Into the Deep, the blog hosted at BeckyEldridge.com. She has always struck me as a confident and insightful woman steeped in discernment and spirituality. This conversation was clear evidence of that. You won't want to miss a minute. So, here we go.
Welcome Beth to the podcast. I just introduced you to all of my listeners and I mentioned that you and I first met through Becky Eldridge because she was compiling women Ignatian writers for her new blog in 2020. And I think the first time we met was online in that and we've met many other times online but never in person, uh, even though you live in one of my favorite cities, Chicago. So hopefully I will get up there again and we will meet in person someday. Yeah, well, it is so great to be with you, Gretchen. Um, really looking forward to our conversation today. And you would be most welcome to come to Chicago anytime. It is a, a wonderful, wonderful city. And yeah, like you said, you know, it's it's been so funny these last number of years, how many people we meet virtually and these incredible connections that you make, especially in in all things related to Ignatian spirituality. I, I feel like I've met so many kindred spirits and I really do long for the day where that can be a meeting in real life too. Yeah. Well, the one great thing that happens is that all of my guests so far have been Almost all of my guests have been from different states. I interviewed my second Minnesotian this week, but for the most part, they've been from different states and you're another state to add to the roster. So that's one really great thing about having all these online connections. Fantastic. So one question I want to start off with is actually, how did you get into Ignatian spirituality? Like, how were you introduced to Ignatian spirituality? Oh, that's a great question. I was introduced to Ignatian spirituality probably close to 20 years ago. Uh, so I was a young adult living in Chicago and was involved in a number of different young adult ministry ventures across the city. And it was a time when Father Michael Sparrow and a group of Jesuits uh, were starting Caris Ministries. Mm. And they eventually expanded that to a number of, of different cities. And I, I think some of their retreat models are, are still in use at different parishes and dioceses. But it was really through the work of Karis Ministries that I began to go on some Ignatian-themed retreats. And I think one of the things that I, that I really appreciated about the way Karis designed their retreats is there was this intentional invitation to invite young adults to be part of the leadership team for these retreats. Mm -hmm. So not mm -hmm. only was it this really incredible retreat experience and, and really teaching young adults the ways of, of prayer and discernment and, and listening for God's call and you know being men and women of others out in the world, but there was also this invitation for, for further reflection and leadership development by inviting mm. young adults to serve on the teams for these retreats. And yeah. I, I think that's where I really grew in my understanding of Ignatian spirituality and, mm -hmm. and being able to, you know, write and give witness talks on retreats and, and really articulate how, how God was present in my own life. And really, as, a, as an outgrowth of that, when I began discerning going back to school to study theology and ministry, I started looking for a spiritual director. So naturally, mm -hmm. uh, went through Karis uh, to find a recommendation mm -hmm. for a spiritual director. I actually met with my spiritual director this morning. Uh, and oh, he nice. is the same. I've been working with the same spiritual director for probably 15 or 16 years. And oh, wow. Someone, Wonderful. Someone that was paired paired with me um, initially through Karis Ministries, but he's a, 
a lay person, married with children, but trained in the Ignatian tradition. And that also, you know, working one-on-one with someone month in and month out has really helped me integrate the principles of Ignatian spirituality in my life. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you said to get to really know Ignatian spirituality, you both have to live it through being in the retreat experience yourself, but then you also have to give that experience to someone else. Because when St. Ignatius trained his men in the exercises, the training was going through the exercises, right? And then leading someone else through the exercises could only happen after you first encountered them yourself. So I think it is really important to note that not only do we gain a lot from these retreat experiences and these experiences of spiritual direction, but we gain even more when we offer those to someone else or we try to return the favor to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because now that I think about it, you know, one of, one of the other kind of pillars of my spiritual life is, is that I'm in a women's prayer group. And, and the women mm. I am in prayer group with are women that I met so many years ago when I was going through those retreat experiences. And we do continue to, to kind of use Ignatian spirituality in our, in our monthly time in prayer together. And those are experiences that we, that we hold in common and a, and a language yeah. that we use to describe yeah. the movements of the spirit in our life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I definitely learned very quickly that Ignatian spirituality has its own language. There's a, there's a <laughs> lot of words that are very unique to Ignatian spirituality. So if you meet someone that knows these words like magis or consolation or desolation, all of those things, then you know that you found a kindred spirit in Ignatian spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So one of the questions I usually start with uh, as we start on this conversation of belovedness and being loved as you are is who is God to you and how did you come to that understanding and how does that understanding contribute to how you view your own belovedness? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question, Gretchen. <laughs> yeah, two big questions in one. I'm sorry. Yes. No, big no, question. it's a good, it's a good one. I've been, I've been sitting and wrestling with that one all day. Cause I, I, you know, I think in some ways I, you know, I kind of grew up with an image of God that, you know, is the, the white man with the white beard up in the sky and very far removed. And you know, I think the, I think it was a very, very childish, not even childlike, <laughs> you know, almost a very childish <laughs> image of God. And I, you know, I, I think my image of God has expanded so much as I've aged and matured in my, in my understanding of God. And I think one of the ways I think about God is, is as this infinite creator, you know, God, mm-hmm. both God as creator who created the world, but God who, you know, in a very mothering way, has grown and nurtured and and chosen each one of us and formed us mm-hmm. uniquely with with gifts and attributes and personalities and and skills and strengths and so that idea that we are uniquely created and therefore also mm-hmm. uniquely loved and have a mm-hmm. particular gift to give back to the world mm-hmm. is is an image of God that that I hold on to both, I think both for myself and understanding my own belovedness, but, but also as a way of, of just being curious about, about people Mm -hmm. and about the Mm -hmm. world. And I think inevitably we run into people who confound us or irritate us. And I think sometimes (laughs) uh, for me, having a, a spirit of, 
curiosity, like I want, I wonder mm-hmm. what God is is doing with and in and through that other person, um, yeah. and wanting to to recognize and hold their mm-hmm. dignity as someone who's made also in God's image and in God's likeness. Yeah, I think that's a really important way of of looking at other people that we encounter. And it's so hard, right? Especially when we look online and maybe we only, we talked about meeting people online only. Um, Sometimes we only get a very narrow view of what a person is when we meet them through a screen. And so we have to like figure out, okay, there is a bigger person here behind just the little attributes that I've either heard about or that I've encountered directly. And so I bet there's so much more to get to know about who that person is if I give time and space for it than to just make preconceived notions of it. And so having this idea that God created each individual person with such purpose gives us kind of a, a motive for going and figuring out what is that beautiful thing mm-hmm. that's there, that's present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that people are so much more than a label. I think sometimes it's, mm-hmm. it's easy to to put labels on people, um, but that people, there's so much more underneath that. Yeah, for sure. When you think about how your notion of God, especially as someone that loves you as you are, how does that manifest itself in your life? How do you work on developing that understanding and work on on internalizing that understanding? And how does it inform how you how you live? Hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I do as a prayer practice, I do a little bit of centering prayer every day. It's, it's usually how I start my morning is by setting a, a little timer on my, on my phone. Uh, I've got a phone app with a, with a meditation timer on it. Mm. And I, I simply sit in silence and, and part of the, the sitting in silence is allowing myself to rest in this enormous presence that that is mm-hmm. God and to feel that presence around me and within me and for me it's about really being just really present and aware and attentive to where God is inviting me into the day and that reminder that God is present with me in the silence as as I go into my day I think, you know, when you, when you talk about kind of that, you know, seeing myself as beloved, I think part of, of also this practice of, of sitting in the silence is allowing myself to be seen mm-hmm. and, and to be seen in, in the fullness of who I am. And in many ways, how I, how I start my day with, with sitting in silence is a wonderful bookend to how I like to end my day, just doing the Ignatian examine. And, and I will confess that I am not as consistent about praying the <laughs> examine at the, at the yeah. end of the day. But you know, like one of, one of the very first steps of, of the examine is, is to become aware of God's presence. And I, I think it's wonderful. I've had spiritual directors say to me, you know, if, if that very first breath of the examine is all all the more that you do, you know, there's there's all these mm-hmm. these steps and different ways of praying the examine. That simple act of taking a deep breath and acknowledging that everywhere and always we are in God's presence. Mm-hmm. That itself is 
is prayer. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that if you're doing the exam and you rest on step one or step two or whatever it is, or question one or question two, that that is showing up for God, right? And that is probably where God is leading you that day to be attentive to whatever question you rest on. But also I would I would say probably for you, I, I know I feel this way that that I've done the exam in so many times that if I really think about it, I have been doing it throughout my day, even if I didn't make an intentional time at the end of the day. Like there are probably times throughout my day that I stopped for gratitude or that I asked for forgiveness or that I tried to say, okay, God, where are you here? Because it's become such a part of our internal makeup that it's natural for us to do that throughout the day instead of just at rote times in the day. Though those rote times are important to give full attention to God as well. That's a great reminder. (laughs) So you write a lot for Becky's blog, but you also write on your own blog. Can you tell our listeners what you write about? Is it Ignatian spirituality? Are there other themes that you focus on when you write? Yeah, you know, I, I mainly focus on, you know, spirituality at large with with kind of a particular lens through my vocation as a single person. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've always enjoyed writing and it has taken me a long time to uh, really embrace this identity as as mm-hmm. author. And I, yeah. I sometimes laugh when people refer to me as as author and I kind of look over my shoulder like, are you talking about you're talking about me. <laughs> you can't yeah. be talking about me, right? And I, I think some of that is is because my first book that was published in 2009, in many ways, came as a complete surprise. The woman Elizabeth Dreyer, who was the editor of this series of books on women's spirituality, had reached out to me. She had gotten uh, my name through a mutual connection of ours, and she was looking for uh, a woman who was a young adult who would be interested in in writing a book on women's spirituality, particularly geared towards young women in their 20s and 30s, with mm-hmm. a look particularly at, at single women, because she had a different author mm-hmm. who was writing about marriage and family. And, and one of the things I said to Elizabeth is, so I've, I've never written a book before. And she said, that's okay. Yeah. There's a first time for everything. <laughs> and, and you know, it was this wonderful mentoring relationship. And she really helped me birth this book into the world. And she said, you know, I just encourage you to, to go back and, and look at some of your theological writing from graduate school and some of the talks mm-hmm. that you've written for Karis retreats or Theology on Tap talks. Uh, she said, chances mm-hmm. are you have a book in you. It's just a matter of <laughs> compiling this into a manuscript. And and she was absolutely yeah. right. There was a lot I had written in terms of, of theology and vocation mm-hmm. and prayer and social justice. There's some really key themes that we that we focused on in this book uh, called Finding My Voice, A Young Woman's Perspective. Mm-hmm. It was really when, you know, when that book was launched uh, that I started my blog. You know, it was really mm-hmm. meant as a space to experiment with some shorter writings, with some mm-hmm. personal reflections. You know, so much of my ministry has has expanded in so many wonderful ways since then. You know, the opportunity to write 
for Into the Deep, uh, which is hosted on mm-hmm. on Becky Eldridge's website. But you know, even even more recently, you know, my my pastor and the director of liturgy at our parish invited me to preach for morning prayer on Holy Saturday morning. Nice. So my my blog has become just kind of this holding space for some of my speaking engagements mm-hmm. and and other places where, yeah. as we've all learned during the pandemic, that that ability to have a further reach and this openness of people to encounter one another in a virtual space, whether it's, you know, through mm-hmm. through writing or a podcast or a video. So my yeah. blog is is really kind of this this uh, repository of of different different types of writing. Yeah. That's wonderful. And you mentioned that one of the things you intentionally write about is this call to the single life. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about what not only prompted you to write about it and to share it with other people, but also like how you felt that call from God? Because I think it's helpful for other people that feel that call as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I, I grew up going to you know, Catholic church, my Catholic church, Catholic school, my whole life, you know, was was formed by some wonderful religious sisters and priests and always with this understanding that vocation, you know, capital V vocation is a call. Mm -hmm. And it is a calling to the married life, the religious life or the single life. And, and yet it's interesting in hindsight, that uh, the emphasis was always on married life or religious life. And the single life was always presented as kind of this default. Like if the other two mm-hmm. didn't work out, then yeah. you were called to the single life. Um, yeah. When I was in my late 20s, and as I was discerning going back to school to study theology and ministry, the question of vocation came up all the time. I was very mm-hmm. lucky to be studying at, at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, which is the primary school of ministry for a number of different missionary orders, both religious sisters as well as men studying for the priesthood. Lots of lay people in, in various ages and stages of life study in their programs. And so that conversation was always just a very natural one in terms of who are you and where is God calling you? And, mm-hmm. you know, I... I had never really sensed the call to marriage and that it just never really felt right. Um, Mm -hmm. And even though I was exposed to some wonderful religious sisters, you know, religious life didn't feel like it fit either. And it was really during that time that I began to ask myself, well, what does this whole vocation to the single life mean? And, Mm. you know, as I, as I really engaged deeply in conversation with my classmates about their vocation stories and their callings, I really began to wonder, like, what if the single life wasn't a default? Like, what if it was mm-hmm. actually something that you could discern and choose? And and what yeah. difference, what kind of difference would it make if the single life was a chosen vocation that came from God mm-hmm. as a call? And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in many ways, I, I borrowed, <laughs> you know, borrowed vocation language from, you know, men and women that I was studying for studying in graduate school with kind of began applying those questions to, mm-hmm. to my own growing understanding of what it meant to be single. And, the, you know, the more I asked those questions of where where do I feel most at home where does God's love shine most brightly through my life? Who am I called to be with? And how am I called to be with them in the world? Mm-hmm. You know, the more it 
it, it just began to feel like the right place. And, and interestingly, one of the stories I always tell is that, you know, life gets really busy when you're in graduate school. You know, I was, was 29. Yeah. I had given up a career in consulting and was still doing some part-time work to pay the bills and trying to have a social life and go to class. And, and I remember one night saying to myself, you know, like looking at my calendar and figuring out like, how can I fit just one more thing in? And, <laughs> and honestly, the thought ran through my head, like, if I just stop dating, I'll have so much more time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gretchen, yeah. I hadn't I had not been out on a date in five years. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it this yeah. was not about giving up dating. This was about yeah. letting go of the pressure that I had put on myself mm-hmm. to feel like I should yeah. be in a relationship. Yeah. Um yeah. And when I finally like I like to call it when I finally gave up dating, or at least mm-hmm. stopped putting the pressure on myself to think that I should be in a relationship. It, it opened up a whole new world for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also part of how God affirms uh, those callings for us because yeah, some way I just sure. felt this much deeper connection with, with friends, mm-hmm. with family, with classmates, um, with ministry mm-hmm. colleagues. There was this deep, deep sense of fulfillment. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas if there were, if there, if there had ever felt like something was missing, it it was really replaced with this sense that that my relationship with God and the people God brings into my life by by continuing to say yes to this call that that mm-hmm. will always be enough. Yeah, that's I, that's what I love about discernment in general, Ignatian discernment in particular, is that it really talks about this big component of your decisions and your vocation is a conversation with God where God responds to you. And I think often we've been kind of trained in our different churches to listen to what people are telling you are the choices. Like, here's what it is. This is where you go. This is A or B, and this is how you do it. And we sometimes will lose that conversation with God, that need for the God to respond back to us and to believe in the response that God is giving us. And so what I really love about your story, not only that you have the story, but also that you share it with so many other people, is that it gives them permission to listen to what God is telling them and to say, there isn't really a box that you have to fit in and a checklist that you have to perform in the years of your life. It's all about that call and response to God. Like you're asking God, what do you want me to do? And you're waiting for God to respond. And if you you have faith, you're moving in the right direction and doors open, then you know that God's responding in the right way. I think your story definitely exemplifies that for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. You know, I I was going to say in that, and that God, God is big enough to to hold at everything that everything that's in that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, marriage is not perfect. The single life is not perfect. <laughs> Religious life is not yeah. is not perfect. Like, you know, yeah. we're we're busy people, and and life life is full of joy and beauty, and and life is mm-hmm. also really messy. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the things I've come to to learn in that in that listening and responding is is that God is big enough to hold all of that you know to hold mm-hmm. both 
the the joy and the beauty and these these times where it feels very right and and at least for me you know also there those times when the single life is is really lonely or or confusing mm-hmm. or disappointing mm-hmm. you know that that those and and mm-hmm. that those things can coexist yeah that your vocation is never something that isn't meant to be disappointing or have moments that are unfulfilling. Uh, it's more like a journey, right, than the actual mm-hmm. destination. So I think it's so important for all of us to be able to note that, like, no matter what our vocation is, it's going to have its pluses and its minuses. But also to know that there's so many more options for a vocation than what we we typically have thought of married life, religious life. Well, there's also all the vocations to the wonderful work that you do and, and other people do, you know, those are, those are vocations too. So mm-hmm. it's a very wide breath, um, a wide spectrum, if you will, of, of options for how we're supposed to live this beautiful life we've been given. Yeah. Yeah. How has the response been since you've shared your discernment to the single life and, and you've shared in writing and in speaking and in your books? Have you seen that people have responded in a, in a way that said, oh, thank you for like allowing, permit, not necessarily permission, but like giving an example and, and giving us um, tools and, and understanding so that we too can figure out if our vocation is the same? Yeah, I, you know, I've gotten a couple of responses, uh, or I, like, you know, would categorize the responses in a couple of different ways. You know, I, I think about a, a friend of mine, and, and she and I met through some service and ministry circles in Chicago. And I, she had reached out to me and she said she was similarly doing a, a job transition and, and had reached out because as part of that job transition, she's in the healthcare field, you know, was, was really asking these big questions of, you know, she's in her mid to mm-hmm. late twenties, hadn't met anybody. She was living in Chicago. She was, you know, she was part of some really great communities. And she's like, I've dated a handful of guys and nothing works out. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think in in a in a real genuine honesty, she said, you know, Beth, I love what you've written on the single life. And could we talk about like how you did your discernment? How mm-hmm. did how did God reveal this to you? How did how did God affirm that the single life is is where um, you were meant to be. So we had this wonderful conversation, you know, over the course of a couple of coffee dates. And you and, and ultimately mm-hmm. she discerned that, you know, God was calling her to move back to uh, Tennessee where she grew up to be closer mm-hmm. to family. Um, I think she was still curious about, you know, this whole question about the single life. But in terms of career, what was becoming very evident was kind of mm-hmm. relaunching this this new career for her uh, somewhere where she could be closer to her siblings and her parents um, and nieces and nephews. She got in touch with me about a year after she moved home to Tennessee. And she said, um, I met the greatest guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, it's this beautiful love story and they just gotten engaged yeah. and like, I was so happy for her. Mm-hmm. And, and what, but what was great about what I love about her story is that, you know, she really allowed her heart to be open and, and she went yeah. from, you know, a hand, a handful of like really iffy dates and feeling like, 
like that need to be mm-hmm. on the dating scene. And she really took this big step back and she said, you know, it's not about what I want. You really want to step back and say, well, what is it that God wants? Where is God calling mm-hmm. me? And I, you know, I think I've heard variations of this story where people say, I'm ready to open my heart to whatever it is that God wants in my life, whether that's a geographical mm-hmm. move, a career move, a relationship decision. But when people stop, clinging to to what society tells us our lives should look yeah. like and really opening yeah. opening to what to what God says my life should look like. And that's yeah, that's probably the most common story I've heard and and one that I really celebrate no matter where where life ends for people, but that mm-hmm. that openness. Yeah, that open that openness to something greater, something something bigger than they could have imagined on their own. So one of the things that I absolutely love about Ignatian spirituality that I think even took me a few years into knowing Ignatian spirituality to really believe was this idea that God's desires for us match our own deepest desires and that in the end, God doesn't want us to be miserable. So if we are truly open to the path God wants to lead us on and we say, okay, God, if you want me to you know, enter the convent, I'm open, or if if you want me to be single, I'm open, or whatever. And when you imagine one and you're miserable, that doesn't mean that you just haven't accepted that vocation yet. It means that, no, God is really not asking you to be miserable. But if it's only a surface level discernment that you've done and you've decided that you're miserable, then maybe you haven't really gotten in touch with, am I, am I miserable? Or is it just that I've heard all of these things about what my life should be and I'm saying, this is going to make me miserable. I'm not even going to touch that. So that idea that God doesn't want you to be miserable, but also get in touch with what you really do desire uh, deep in your heart. That's a, a very important thing that Ignatian spirituality has taught me for sure. Yeah. When I, and I think one of the things that I've learned so much about in Ignatian spirituality is, is that desire for freedom and and God wants us mm-hmm. to be free. And I think part of part of yeah. what you're talking about and recognizing that that God doesn't that God's God's desires are our desires is mm-hmm. is that you know we those desires are often revealed when we pray for for freedom. And that and and Ignatian spirituality also talks about that sense of detachment and and holy detachment. And you know, can mm-hmm. can I both be free enough to imagine all sorts of possibilities and accept all sorts of possibilities, but can I also detach myself from the outcome mm-hmm. um, and 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 allow what it is that that God really desires to 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 come forth in my discernment. Yeah, I think detaching from the outcome is maybe easier when we can accept that God loves us as we are. Because if if we believe that God loves us unconditionally and magnanimously, then we can know that there's not a road that God will lead us down that will uh, make our lives miserable or that will be incorrect, whatever uh, incorrect might be. And that if we end up on a road that is harmful, that God's walking that same road with us, right? And that God is still there loving us as we are, no matter what path we have taken. Yeah, exactly. Do you ever encounter any challenges in 
your work with talking with people about the single life or trying to kind of help churches and help um, ministries see that as an option? Yeah, all all sorts of challenges. <laughs> I think I think challenges both on the on the personal level as well as as the institutional level. You know, I I remember one time, you know, talking with someone at a at a parish. You know, we were kind of going back and forth about, I think it was a theology on tap talk that they had invited me mm-hmm. to give. And and the more I talked about the single life and the joy I found in the single life, the more they pushed back to me and said, well, mm. young adults don't want to hear about that. Like young adult <laughs> singles are miserable. They want to be, da- they want to be dating. They want to know how to meet somebody. They want to, they want to talk about relationships. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I just remember, you know, standing back and saying, you know, just because I have found joy in the single life and there are a whole lot mm-hmm. of young adults out there wanting to be on the dating scene doesn't mean that there isn't something for both of us to learn from one another. Yeah, yeah for and, sure. And you know, and kind of getting past that, yeah, a little bit of a, a roadblock in terms of, mm-hmm. of what it means to to really live a joyful and authentic single life. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that my life is void of relationships. You know, in, mm-hmm. in some ways, I think it, it makes me even more attuned to the relationships that mm-hmm. I'm in mm-hmm. because they're, because they're, they're just, they're different, you know, they're, they're different Mm -hmm. than, than dating relationships. Some of the most important relationships in my life are friendships. And I, I think I, I, I do ask some of the bigger questions that, that all people ask, you know, who's, who's going to be here for me? (laughs) Who's, who's going to take care (laughs) of me when, when I'm sick or when I'm older, you know, Um, who's going to be here to, to support me and, and rejoice with me when life is good and lift me up when, when life is difficult. Mm-hmm. And the answers to those questions just look very different when my, when my community yeah. is a circle of friends or ministry colleagues it looks very different than someone whose, whose community is grounded in family life with a spouse and mm-hmm. children. So helping, helping people kind of understand and appreciate those, those nuances has been important. I think the other thing that's that's a challenge, you know, at the at the institutional level is is really helping parishes and churches really examine uh where their community life has a preferential mm-hmm. option for couples. I remember that from my 20s. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it is it's it, it is so unintentional, but it is so real. Mm-hmm. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was sharing this story with a friend of mine the other day and this is a, a parish that I will not name. It is not my current parish. It is somewhere that I that I used to drop in, a parish where I would drop in from time to time. And I remember they were hosting a happy hour. I thought, mm-hmm. well, this is fantastic. Like this would just be a great way to to meet some people. Very community centered place. And I remember in the in the church bulletin there was like a registration form, and the registration form mm-hmm. basically said you had to register to go to this happy hour because it had free tickets and free drink tickets and things. But mm-hmm. on the registration form, you had to put your name, your child's name, and your child's homeroom number. No. 
Okay. <laughs> Which seems a little odd. That's weird. But like the un because it wasn't a mom's group. It was it supposedly it was happy hour that was open to everybody. <laughs> but it was so clear from yeah. the registration form that the target yeah. audience was parents, was parents yeah. age children. Mm-hmm. And like I just I just remember that sinking feeling of like do they do they get it? Like it mm-hmm. they say this is open to everyone, but it was just so yeah. evident from the way the event was designed that it was really designed mm-hmm. for for couples and parents of of school age children. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I you know, I, I I love to give churches a hard time when they uh, <laughs> host host their annual gala and fundraiser and the tickets are cheaper if you buy two. Um, you know, couples, mm, couples yeah. get in, couples get in for cheaper because you're paying for two people, yeah. um, singles pay yeah. the full price. I think all sorts of ways that we, that we unintentionally can, yeah, can, can sideline singles. Yeah. And I will give, you know, I, I will give some, some credit to my current parish with some wonderful ushers. And I, mm-hmm. I always pay attention to who brings up the gifts at the offertory. So if you're, oh, you're, yeah. if you're a Catholic mass goer, um, you know, sometimes they have a <laughs> schedule of who brings up the offertory gifts. But more often than yeah. not, the ushers are, you know, just, you know, grabbing that mom and dad and three kids from the middle pew because they're sitting <laughs> close to the yes. gifts. And, and I will say the ushers at my current parish are really good about you know, some some weeks they will pull a family, other weeks they will pull two single people. They're very they're very intentional and observant about making sure that the random people that that they invite to bring up the offertory gifts uh, mm-hmm. represent the diversity of of our parish, which I appreciate. As you were speaking, I was thinking about which these things aren't necessarily bad. They're, they're good with a both and approach, but that we often have groups that kind of categorize people throughout the church. And so you would have like the group of people who are grieving and they have, you know, their support group on grief, which is wonderful. A group of young mothers, you know, who are all trying to live that young motherhood together, uh, a group of parish families, a group of school families, you know, we have all these individualized groups of, of how to get people together so that they can meet people like them. But then there's also not the, as many, some churches do it very well. So I should say some, some parishes do it well and others don't that, how do we get everyone included into mixed groups, you know, so that people meet each other and you're not like, okay, when I go to because you are naturally going to want to be with people who have the same life experiences as you, but that doesn't mean those are the only people that you should be mm-hmm. meeting and hanging around with, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So looking for those opportunities where the thing we have in common is is our baptismal call and our baptismal identity <laughs> yes. in Christ. Um, that, that one thing that, that pulls us all together as church. Yeah. Yeah. And I resonate it with your story because, you know, I got married at 30, 30, I think, but my entire twenties was going to church and then wanting to meet people who were my age, but not necessarily wanting to go to something that was, everyone's looking at each other as you know, possible dates or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So if, if a group was labeled a singles group, I would not go, but inevitably you would go to something not labeled a singles group and it would be 
a singles group, which I guess is the nature of a lot of people in their 20s. But, you know, as you get to the older side of 20, then you go and there's somebody else that's like 30. And then they're looking at you like, well, she's the 30 year old in the group. So, you know, so it becomes a very awkward situation where you're like, I just want to make friends. Like, uh, <laughs> and I think that comes a lot from how early do we start talking about what vocations are and putting people into categories and saying, you have to choose. Eventually, you're going to have to choose one of these. But in all of our experience, we are single persons for at least 16, 18, sometimes 30 years of our lives, even if we date people in between, like, we're not married for this whole big portion of our lives. And so that should be talked about more as like, let's celebrate this time when we are just getting to know who we are, right? Without the context of another person, like we're just getting to know ourselves and who we are as beloved children of God before we try and then try to couple that with somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, when I when I wrote my second book, so my second book is called uh, Party of One, Living Single with Faith, Purpose and Passion. And the way the book is laid out is it's it's 16 or 17 chapters that all address each chapter addresses a different myth about the single life. Mm -hmm. Um, So so each each chapter addresses a different myth about the single life. And then for every myth, I, I pair it with a spiritual principle. And so it, it really is about how do we use the tools of the spiritual life to live a full mm-hmm. and abundant single life, whether we're single mm-hmm. for now or single for a lifetime. And, yeah. and the very first myth that I address is the myth that life begins at marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we, I think for some of us, we we grow up with this notion that that adulthood begins when you get married. Um, it begins yeah. when you walk down the aisle, and and I know mm-hmm. for me, you know, I I kind of had this idealized version of how old I would be when I got married and had children and bought a house and you know felt felt secure in my career. And, and none of those things happened in the order that I thought they would. (laughs) And and those milestone dates go by age 21, 25, Mm -hmm. 30. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it was when, you know, when I was really doing that, that discernment and and coming to understand Mm -hmm. that, that the single life was what was a calling in and of itself that I realized like there, there is a, there is a whole lot of life here to be lived. Life mm-hmm. is not a dress rehearsal for something else. Like we yeah. only, we only get yeah. to do this once. Mm-hmm. And so what is it that, that God is inviting me into right now? That, mm-hmm. that ability to be, to be present to the call as it, as it is today, even if it wasn't what mm-hmm. I imagined as I was, mm-hmm. as I was, as I was growing up. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people are getting married after 30, after 35, you know, later in life, and they are spending a good 10, 15 years focused on friendships and career and living single life. And so I also think there's space in the church to celebrate that discern that longer discernment and that time spent really getting to know who you are as opposed to I guess like my parents got married at 22 Mm -hmm. I think 22 so 
we kind of have that notion still in the church of like, you're right, like life begins at marriage. So all these other years, then you don't have church groups and connections that are formed as readily because we're waiting until you come back with your children and your wedding and all of those things. Even the surveys, I think that the Pew Research does says like people return to the church when they have kids or they return to the church when they're married. And sometimes I'm like, well, is that big gap because they've walked away or is it because they just didn't have anywhere to connect in Mm -hmm. when they were at church Mm -hmm. because there wasn't a lot for those years of your life, right? And then if your single life is not just 10 to 15 years, but it is your life and where's your connection to the church and to church groups. I don't know if that resonates with you or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it, it absolutely resonates. And and that's why I think, you know, young adult groups that are not singles groups, but that are, <laughs> that are really, you know, this place for intentional community, you know, whether, mm-hmm. whether that is the, the kind of intentional community that forms if you do a year of postgraduate service and, mm-hmm. and have that sense of, of lived community and shared community together, or, you know, simply a group that, that gathers to pray the rosary together once a week or have some kind of devotional life together. And then, and then some fellowship or scripture study, you know, mm-hmm. but a, a groups that come together and do service, you know, service is a place mm-hmm. where I've, where I've always seem to find connections of with people of all ages and stages in life mm-hmm. and have felt this wonderful sense of, of connection to serving those in need together. But mm-hmm. I, I, I agree that having those places that are <laughs> pressure, pressure free uh, to simply yes, live, out, live, sure. out our, live out our faith together in a communal yeah. way is so mm-hmm. important for those things. You know, yeah, what what was once understood as kind of those in between years. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But then certainly, as as I've grown to to know my own calling as a single woman, I think what's what's come with that also is a sense of confidence. So I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not nearly as concerned about what might be missing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I you know I mostly am concerned with wanting to be faithful to where God is calling. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think what you mentioned is so important, that sense of confidence that comes when you have really discerned and, and accept it and said, God, I will, I'm going to do what you, what you're asking me to, and your desires match my own deepest desires. And, you know, I am going with freedom to try and travel down this road and then finding out that, yes, that is the right road for you. Then there is a sense of freedom and a less, this uh, self-conscious way of entering into the world, which is, which is great. And I, I do see that there are some people that find it earlier than I did in like my 40s. But, you know, that sense of confidence comes to us all at different times. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to have those those things in place for people to tap into so that they can get that sense of confidence, that sense of community, that sense of really being welcomed and celebrated in their unique vocation. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's anything I said challenging about your vocation, but I think just challenging in general with helping yourself or helping other people understand their belovedness in today's world, this idea of being loved as you are. Are there things that are particularly challenging right now in 2023 with with that message and, and helping people accept it? I think one of the 
the perennial challenges is is always going to be this, you know, subtle and and sometimes overt societal pressure of of who you should be or ought to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I think there are unique ways that that manifests itself in 2023. I think mm-hmm. it's exacerbated by social media. You know, there's all these stories about how, you know, and I, and I know you've got a platform on Instagram, but I'll call out Instagram <laughs> in particular, like, please do, do not, do not. It let, sucks me right in. <laughs> no, do not. I mean, it has been proven that, that Instagram is is detrimental to teenage and preteen girls in in terms mm-hmm. of of self image mm-hmm. you know the ability to put filters on things and you know so i i think i, I think that's a that's a perennial challenge of mm-hmm. of belovedness of you know can mm-hmm. can i accept who i am with all of my of my gifts and limitations and and I, and I think social the social media environment makes that that really challenging because it just invites comparison, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's this. It's not a, a scriptural proverb, but it's a a popular proverb mm-hmm. that says comparison kills the soul. You know, yeah. And I, and I think the more we fall into comparison, the more the more we forget that that God made us exactly who we are mm-hmm. for a reason. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. I don't even know if it's just the filters that other people place on their pictures, but the filters that I'm capable of placing on my own pictures. Because I think even as whatever age you are, if you see yourself in this unrealistic way that shows you maybe as you always wished you were, or, you know, what you wished you were when you're 40, you know, you wished you looked like you were still 20. So you put this filter on you. And then you see yourself in an actual mirror. And then you're naturally disappointed, right? There's this difference between what you've seen, you're cap- capable of being in this fake portrait and then what you see just right in front of you. And I think that is a challenge we don't even realize that we're having. It's not always about other people's pictures. Sometimes it's about our own happy moments that we're putting out there that are you know, filtered or changed. And then we have to like then enter our house that's not as beautiful as we put it out, you know, like there's, there's a mess on the floor or there's kids screaming or whatever. And you say, oh my gosh, my reality is so different than what, you know, and you kind of get confused between those two realities as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are, are we as transparent in our digital lives as we are in our, in our real lives? Yeah. Yeah. And as we meet more people online, and connect with people across the world. You know, we have some real friendships forming online. How do you we translate that transparency to people that are not right in front of us, especially when we can perfect how we're going to talk to them in our perfect prose messages or perfect what pictures we will show other people of ourselves, whatever it is. Like how do how do we get friends from a distance to know the real us? Can you get that value friendship from an online friendship. And so it's like, okay, if that's true and that is how we are making friendships, then we really got to think about what, how we're presenting ourselves to these real friends and how they are presenting themselves to us. Are we really being vulnerable and upfront with one another? Mm -hmm. Well, 
I want to be uh, cognizant of your time. Thank you, Beth, so much for this conversation and for coming on and talking about your unique perspective of what it means to be loved as you are. I hope we can have another conversation in the future, but I really appreciate it. This- Thank you so much, Gretchen. This was wonderful. So good to be with you. my conversation with Beth as much as I did. I loved hearing about Beth's journey through discernment and how she actively lives out her vocation while giving witness to others who desire to live out their vocations too, whatever they may be. Information on how to follow Beth Knob is in the show notes. These conversations are bringing me such life, and I can't wait to share even more of them with you. I think you'll notice that I'm trying to get a variety of perspectives and experiences on this podcast, including both Catholic and non-Catholic, Ignatian and other forms of spiritual practice as well. If you think you or someone you know has a story to share on this podcast, please email me at lovedasyouarepod at gmail.com. And if you like this podcast, subscribe and leave a review. I'd love to have your feedback and be able to continue to move this podcast in a direction that is valuable for you. You can also find everything related to this podcast at Loved As You Are Pod on Instagram and at GretchenCrowder.com slash Loved As You Are Podcast. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, remember to be who you are because that's exactly who God wants you to be. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.